Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I should say Achtung Achtung here, but I'm not going to because we're not talking about the Second World War. Yes, James and I have veered off course like a, like an articulated lorry on black ice. We've jackknifed and we've wound up in the Malvinas, the Falkland Islands, to give them their correct name. Um, we won. We get to call them what we want. And we're talking to Roland White, of course. This is part two of our conversation about Harrier 809, his fantastic book, about the air war in the Falklands, which we all remember from when we were little boys. Uh, we hope And girls, oh, that was close. We hope you enjoy this. Experiencing it in 1982, I, I, you don't, I don't think I realised actually how close the whole thing was. You know, I, no. I was, uh, and, I, I, and I don't know that people still even do no, realise um, how fingernails the whole thing actually was. Um, yeah. I mean, and obviously it would be, c- considering how far it is from the UK. You're trying to l- land a force amphibiously thousands and oh. thousands of miles away. I mean, I mean it, that's it, the thing that beggars belief is the, the yeah. distance. I mean, you, yeah. know, that, the, you know, that first um, that first Vulcan raid um, against Port Stanley uh, airfield yeah. was like trying to bomb Western China from Heathrow. I mean, you yeah. know, that's the, that's the kind of distance you're talking about. I mean, it was... It couldn't have been a more challenging logistics chain. And I think that this is, is why it's such an interesting inflection point, uh, 1982, I think, in that we, we, we were talking earlier about all the cuts there were and the decisions that were having to be made about you know, cutting our cloth to what was required of us as a par- yep. partner in NATO. And yet still there was this sort of uh, vestigial breadth and depth to British defence, both in terms of industry and in terms of defence establishments, whether it was Farnborough, the Royal Radar Establishment, um, uh, British Aerospace, um, the, the, um, uh, the the missile development. Um, so, so the warfare uh, the, state, as it, uh, as it were. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, what David Edgerton writes about yeah. um, was sort of breathing its last in 1982 in terms of that breadth and depth. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's entirely gone now, but certainly 1982 was recognisably uh, related to what we had in, in, in 1945. I mean, there yeah. was even, you know, whether this still exists or not, I don't know, you know, the aviation bird units in Warpleston in Surrey that produced a report on the Air Force's might might uh, meet or need to know in terms of uh, bird life down in South Atlantic. Um, and, you know, that, that, that in itself was a kind of comprehensive report. You know, it, it, it was serious, actually. I mean, we lost a Sea King a helicopter full of SAS as it uh, moved men from Hermes to one of the amphibious yeah. ships. And, and one of the theories uh, around the loss of that was that it, it uh, ingested an albatross into, into uh, one of the engines and went down. But... Um, I mean, the, the line which really struck me from that that bird report was about the um, penguins being the biggest birds they were likely to meet down in the South Atlantic, but these didn't pose too much of a risk to aviation <laughs> because they couldn't jump very high. <laughs> well, 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 I mean, I, I've I've been there twice for entertaining the troops' purposes, and the curra curra birds, whatever they are, yeah. are enormous. 
Yeah. And and yeah. You, the, 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 you can see why that why you would need to be, be across a thing like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, the, the the thing. I mean, after all, and, and the Harrier, after all, is a British product, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because you know the tornado which is coming on, yeah. about to come online at this point, is a pan-European mm-hmm. military project. So in a way, it is the end of. Um, the UK being able to produce yeah. its own kit, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the the, the Sea Harrier uh, has been described on, on a number of occasions. I mean, it's been described as the last all-British fighter, and I'm sure it, that that's the case. Yeah. And it's it, it, interesting that, you know, the last all-British fighter, you know, recognisably has the sort of same-shaped tail as a Hawker Hunter, um, which yeah. was, you know... Essentially, a kind of iterative development of a Hawker Fury from between between the wars. I mean, you yeah, know, Sydney yeah. Cam never liked really pushing the boat out when it came to you know uh, radical aircraft design. It always just do what what was tried and trusted. Um, you can see that through the Fury, the Hurricane, Typhoon, and Tempest. Yeah, yeah. But Ronald, yeah. also, I mean, I think the other thing is is recognisably following on from the long tradition oh, yeah. of fighter pilots from the second world war and into the 50s as well and i and i think yeah. you know it's, it's interesting isn't it you know when when uh um, tim gedge suddenly finds himself having to share with uh, share an aircraft carrier with um sharky ward and sharky ward is absolutely a kind of douglas barder kind of uh, oh, yeah. gallant figure a kind of sort of my way or the highway isn't it he's kind of you know you're either kind of with him or against him it's kind of there's no middle ground and and you know, you've just seen those characters so many times before. Yeah, I mean, they're chalk and cheese, um, Tim and, and Sharky, and they were very much there at the beginning of the sort of Sea Harrier um, world. Uh, Sharky led the uh, the development squadron 700H. Rumour has it that H is for Harrier. Um, oh, no, it's, sorry, it's a 700A, and rumour has it that the H is for Aria. Um, and uh, and then Tim led the first um, frontline squadron, 800. Um, and yeah, as you said, they, they were chalk and cheese, very, very different approaches. Sharky's kind of um, all guns blazing, uh, front-footed, very much a kind of uh, sort of Ord Wingate, David Sterling character um, who's sort of, you know, fantastic leading the troops in a in a war brush everything aside in in pursuit of um killing as many germans as possible um and um you know he he was or argentinians and um you know that was something that was incredibly valuable down south boosted the morale of everybody involved you know the engineers the those on board the destroyers and the frigates when they heard sharky uh, over the net they they knew they had somebody who was in there pressing on, pressing on, um, looking to shoot down as many enemy aircraft as possible. You know, he just he just had a sort of presence about him that inspired confidence. Tim Gedge was incredibly competent, uh, incredibly well liked, um, incredibly uh, professional, and a great fighter pilot, but didn't have that same kind of uh, uh, conspicuous aggression uh, about him. But he was also. Uh, when you talk to any of his pilots, a wonderful leader. He kind of got things done. He managed to, he thought of everything. Uh, he he produced a, a squadron from scratch in uh, in three weeks and got them south by sort of leaving no stone uh, unturned. Um, and... Um, and was recognised uh, in his achievement in that by winning something called the, um, uh, the Boyd Trophy, which is awarded each year for the sort of... Um, the outstanding achievement in naval aviation. So 
his sort of more softly, softly, less conspicuous, less sort of tub thumping approach uh, was something that was appreciated, but it's um, not earned him the kind of post Falklands War reputation that Sharky has as our kind of legendary fighter ace. Uh, and what about and what about one squadron? Because in a way, they've almost got the biggest challenge of all because they're yeah. in GR3, so they're in the traditional Harrier, which is different from the Sea Harrier because it hasn't been given its kind of anti sea salt coating and it's got a slightly different cockpit and. You know, they're kind yeah. of suddenly they're being expected to kind of be on the Atlantic conveyor too. And, you know, I mean, yeah, really, yeah, really yeah. challenging circumstances. And they're also expected to play second fiddle to the to the naval air squadrons. I mean, I think they had one of the hardest jobs of, of all. I mean, they were completely unfamiliar with operating from a carrier. Um, operating an aeroplane which um, was unable to kind of uh, initialise any of its avionics and uh, weapons systems uh, from a moving deck, despite the best efforts there were to provide them with the, the ability to do that. They're essentially using uh, pre-World War II um, gun sites, fixed gun sites. And, um, you know, that, you know, even Spitfires and Hurricanes in Battle of Britain had uh, more modern gun sites than the Harriers were being forced to use in the, um, the Falklands War. And I mean, it, it, I talked to Bob Iverson, who uh, was one of the flight commanders on one squadron um, about this uh, and uh, kind of realised the extent of what was being asked of them, you know, flying 8,000 miles from home, uh, just north of the Arctic Circle from a 20,000 tonne ship uh, from which they'd not had any practice at all flying using uh, nav kit and radios that couldn't really be relied on. I mean, the, you know, the, the bravery uh, and courage and underlying skill um, based on, you know, deep training um, and confidence in the aeroplane that they had allowed them to do it. I mean, yeah, and they, their job was not made easier uh, by the by the, the, the attitude towards them from some within the Navy. And I've, I've sort of written about this in the book at all. I mean, there was the, the Navy was, as I mentioned, feeling really bruised in 1982. And the relationship between the Air Force and the Navy had always been a uh, or the fleet air arm and the Air Force had always been a sort of slightly tense one. Um, obviously, the RAF was formed in 1918 from the Royal Flying Corps and the, um, the Royal Naval Air Service uh, and had always been felt as if it was sort of fighting survive for, for survival through the 20s. Um, and and that kind of uh, view, uh, I think, sort of persisted perhaps until it had it had the Battle of Britain, when from that point on, uh, its position was secure as an independent air force, beyond any doubt whatsoever. It wasn't any more entirely reliant on the success of a strategic air bombing campaign um, for as a sort of raison d'etre. Um, but the fleet air arm, by contrast, became something of a sort of Cinderella service, always seen after the RAF's success in securing its position as a sort of afterthought, um, always sort of um, uh, regarded as uh, a sort of second tier, easily sort of forgotten about in sort of terms of sort of public awareness, public consciousness. And that was particularly acute in 1982 with the sort of sale of Invincible to Australia, um, the, 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 the loss of Ark Royal and the sort of big jets that uh, operated from that. And I'm not sure the RAF even sort of really knew about it. Yeah, the, the, yeah the, and it's always the sort of underdog, isn't it, that, that kind of feels that chip 
sort of most acutely. Sort of it, you know, what the RAF thinks of the the fleet arm means everything to the fleet arm, but it's of no real interest to the RAF. But what they realised when they got down there was um, the Navy regarded this as their shop window. This was their opportunity to prove how valuable they were and why we needed aircraft carriers and why we needed the fleet air arm and why we needed um, uh, uh, a deep water uh, navy that could serve beyond the sort of Greenland, Iceland, UK gap. Um, and so the involvement of the RAF uh, um, was seen as something that might uh, sort of muddy the water and might uh, prevent them from from demonstrating uh, quite such a pure case for for the necessity of the fleet era um and uh you know that that unfortunately did manifest itself in some i don't know some quite sort of uh uh you know brutal and undisguised um ill treatment of uh, of one squadron while they were down there i think jj black's son simon was one of my brother tom's best mates at school yeah i mean i loved uh jj black's um rallying speech um to to the crew of invincible uh, just as they were coming towards the uh, the exclusion zone at the end of uh, April. Um, he could detect that there was a sort of, you know, or, or he was told um, that there was a, you know, little nervousness um, uh, amongst the crew. You know, they 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 were aware of um, some of the doubts people had back home, and that, that perhaps there were in America about what lay ahead. You know, none of them had. Uh, JJ Black had served in Indonesia and um, uh, Borneo and had some experience uh, of fighting, but. Most of the crew, or none of the crew, uh, uh, did, and, and obviously that that caused some nervousness. And he talked to them about how capable, but they were, how well trained they were, what the strength of the equipment they had, and how uh, they should expect tough times ahead that they would prevail. Uh, but he realised he hadn't sort of come up with any way of really sort of concluding the speech with anything memorable. And he's sort of desperately trying as he's talked to them to come up with something. And uh, he said, finished on something which uh, uh, in the end got printed on T-shirts. He says, you know, frankly, I think we'll piss it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> And he was really disappointed by coming up with something sort of apparently sort of so sort of uh, un-Nelsonian. Uh, and uh, and yet by the time he'd made it from the recording studio back to the bridge there he'd been greeted by uh, a number of the crew with sort of thumbs up sort of cla- and clap saying we'll piss it sir we'll piss it and you know, a day later they, they they were printing t-shirts which the crew were wearing with says we'll piss it with jj black so I mean, he, I mean, he was a he was brilliant, and he 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 made a point always when everyone visited him um, in his quarters, um, his day cabin, which sort of just behind the the, the bridge. Um, he'd always be just lying, sort of reclined on his bed, reading a sort of paperback novel, just to make it look like he didn't have a care in the world. And, and he he wore a he wore a sort of flight suit and a, a baseball cap. I mean, really, really cool guy. I I thought. I mean that lead that I mean it's a thing we talk about on the podcast a lot actually what was done to keep morale buoyant um in the in the task force because that's a you're a long way from home it's all it's all difficult there's lots and lots of pressure aside from you know uh, rhetoric of variable quality what what's going on to keep people on track and to keep uh, people's danders up especially when you're losing losing ships and even though we understand that you, you you know you're going to and they're they're part of 
that there's a there's a different, more phlegmatic view mm. within the navy to losing ships. What's being done to keep everyone everyone's on track? Well, uh, there was beer. Uh, and that's right. um, you know uh, an important difference between us and the U.S. Navy, obviously. And they, <laughs> yeah. they, while they ran out of chocolate, they didn't run out of beer, and that that was um, that was critical. <laughs> uh, cho- chocolate uh, didn't last the war, I don't think. It was really the result that, that, uh, of um, good news coming through. I mean, they were always yeah. uh, that we got off to a fantastic start not not usefully uh go go one of Cr- james cricket analogies you know they had a, a a great sort of opening few overs um the opening yeah. batsman did a great job you know on day one of the war the harriers been particularly sharky ward squadron um established the upper hand um we shot down two uh mirages from the argentines um sort of elite fighter squadron in the first serious dogfight of the war and they never really troubled the scorers again uh, they were sort of uh, withdrawn back to the the mainland to try and defend the mainland against possible uh, vulcan attack they never again tried to uh, win the war against the harriers and i think this was a huge sort of strategic mistake um, rather than try to take out the Harriers, they decided that they were going to have to, they were going to live with the presence of the Harriers and just concentrate on trying to stop uh, the amphibious landing instead. So what it meant was that after an initial burst of two or three days of quite fierce fighting in the air, there was then a standoff uh, for for two or three weeks where really there wasn't much going on. You know, we we uh, we sunk the Belgrano. The Sheffield yes. was uh, was sunk in response. Very very big. Yeah, but, that was. But, big. Well, I was going to say there's a parallel in that, isn't there? Mm. Is that the Belgrano means basically the the Argentinian Navy doesn't doesn't come out right, to get yeah, after that. Really, it doesn't yeah, commit re- to battle at all. Absolutely, re- it's completely removed from uh, from all. all you know, all subsequent events. I mean, yeah. you know, there, there, there was also the possibility uh, of what one Argentine pilot described um, sort of wistfully almost as what could have been the, the midway of the South Atlantic. Um, on day one of the war, the Argentine yes. aircraft carrier, the 25th of May, uh, planned to launch what was described as an alpha strike. So a maximum effort uh, strike using its um, uh, squadron of Skyhawks against the British carriers. Um, And they knew where uh, certainly one of the British carriers was. They'd they'd flown sort of surveillance missions through the night. But the Argentines uh, used um, conventional aircraft carrier, which requires uh, the the heavily loaded aeroplanes to be catapulted into the air and with wind over the deck to to provide sufficient airspeed to get them um, airborne, unlike the Harriers, which are able to sort of launch uh, off a ski jump. And, and the wind drops, doesn't and it? And that's that's right. Uh, in 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 a part of the world where there are always strong winds, I mean, there's an, it's never kind of calm. Uh, on the day that they wanted to launch the strike, it was dead calm. There was just not a wisp of breeze, and they just couldn't. They just didn't have enough wind, enough airspeed. They couldn't uh, drive the ship fast enough to generate yeah. enough uh, uh, speed to get those those Skyhawks airborne. And so they were just sat on deck, unable to, to launch this strike. And the irony is that through the late 70s, British Aerospace and Foreign Office were desperately trying to sell the Sea Harrier to the Argentine Navy, um, <laughs> while... Um, 
the oh, MOD was doing its very best to, to ask them not to. Um, but the Foreign Office saying, look, you know, the, the Sea Harrier is essentially a sort of defensive aeroplane. We can't see how it could be possibly be of any use in a war in the South Atlantic. Um, and, uh, you know, how wrong they were. But, um, you know, in the end, they bought uh, Super Etendars and Exocet missiles. That didn't work out entirely badly for them. Uh, but we were incredibly lucky on that first day that because there was no wind, there was no um, strike launched against the British carrots, which we may or may not have been able to defend ourselves against effectively. You know, it's one of those great unknowns. But th- those, as you obviously well know, uh, are critical, pivotal uh, through 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 any war. Yeah, amazing stuff. I mean, it is a cracking story. It really is. And it's a, it's a rip-snorting read. And in terms of kind of action and drama and all the rest of it, it's absolutely amazing. Oh, that's very kind of you. I mean, I, you know, the 11-year-old boy who was reading the papers every day would have, would have uh, enjoyed a rip-snorting read, would have, would have been pleased to have, have known there was a rip-snorting read about the war uh, out there. I mean, uh, you know, it's... Um, yeah, I hope I've managed to combine a little bit of sort of rigorous... Uh, archival research with um, with with uh, with a bit of pace. Certainly not short of research, that's for sure. But I thought it's fascinating, and and just and just so much more uh, drama to it than you know it appeared when you're reading the newspapers at school in well, 1982. Well, that, that's, I mean, it it is. Um, I mean, one one of the reviews actually sort of suggested that uh, the, the book was was in some ways a sort of microcosm. It was like a sort of mini Battle of Britain. And and I was actually quite conscious of that as I, I, I wrote it because the Falklands War is really unusual, particularly in comparison to the wars we've uh, put, been put through subsequently. I mean, partly because it only reinforces, Al kind of alluded to earlier, this sort of sense of British exceptionalism. You know, we won the Second World War. We then won everything. And, and even Suez, militarily, uh, was a victory. Uh, or a diplomatic disaster, obviously. Um, the Falklands reinforced that view against all odds uh, that we were able to punch above our weight. We were, as part of a coalition, uh, you know, obviously successful in 1991. But um, post 9-11, uh, we've realised that uh, actually perhaps we aren't quite as exceptional as uh, we like to believe. And the Falklands certainly played into that sort of... I mean, I grew up in the 70s with Warlord and Commando comic, and I, I subscribed to that completely. I mean, I, you know, that was very much my... My view. I mean, I read Look and Learn, and they had articles about you know. Yeah, Look and Learn was brilliant, and and uh, but they also they had sort of uh, if there was an article about volcanoes, the article would be about volcanoes in Birmingham and how how they were the biggest and best volcanoes in the world, (laughs) and and you know that and and so you know we 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 had a very sort of skewed view of the world uh, growing up in the sort of seventies and eighties, and then and. You know, some of that uh, has definitely been sort of rubbed off uh, and, and a bit more nuanced now, I think. The Falklands War also has that sort of... Um, uh, uh, because It's so contained, isn't it? The civilian... There are no civilian casualties. There's, there's yeah. none of the collateral damage, <clears throat> cruise missile hits a school, Hercules attacks a wedding stuff that, 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 that since... All that everything mm-hmm. has since been characterised by. It's contained... Exactly. You know, the, the, the carriers essentially, I and mean, if you want a comparison with the Battle of Britain, I mean, we, you're kind of talking about the Argentinian Air Force not really sure of what to do and the Navy uh, uh, improvising, um, uh, not really clear of what it's trying to achieve, being stymied by the RAF's efforts and the fleet air arms efforts, kind of creating a home advantage with the jump jets and, and, and so on. 
So it's quite it's quite peculiar, you know. The, yeah. the, the similarities are there, and also it's it is contained. You don't have the sort of spill of, of collateral damage, and so it's easy to be beguiled by it as a yeah. as a, as a, exactly. as a as a war. I no, I completely agree. It, it it's very easy to uh, to kind of uh, regard it in isolation, um, and and it's it's sort of uncomplicated in that you had uh, two uniformed adversaries sort of fighting. A full spectrum conflict as well, you know. I mean, from the point of view of an eleven-year-old boy, it's got it's all got it all. It's got it's got jump jets, it's got dogfights, it's got submarines and torpedoes, it's got uh, war at sea, it's got commando raids and amphibious landing, it's got special forces, uh, it's got spy planes. It's, I mean, you know, the RAF were planning to fly a Canberra, a land a Canberra on the Pan American Highway uh, and refuel it, and then sort of send it down to fly out of Punta Arenas and drop the. The, uh, the intelligence take uh, in plastic bags from the Bombay of a Canberra uh, by the side of Invincible with sort of do not remove tags so that they well, could find and, it. And, and the other thing it's got when you go to Stanley is it's got Victorian brick houses. I mean, the roofs, yeah. some of the roofs are corrugated on a different... Yeah, and it was yeah. a village hall. So it yeah. looks... It, 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 and it, a guild no that's two got ways a red box. telephone box. Yeah. 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 yeah, pubs. No yeah. two ways about it. It looks like... It looks like a you know a a, a, a fishing village. My, so the iconography completely uh, is completely beguiling. I know it's got and there's the I mean I I went lucky enough to go down there myself and I, I love they have got the burger van down there. Um, I, my particular favourite was a shop. I'm sure it, was, it sold all sorts of things, but on this particular occasion, perhaps it was a run up to Valentine's Day. Yeah. Uh, it was decided that that this month it was sort of sexy shop month, and it had a sort of you know a, a lingerie hanging in the window. And, and I mean, it is it is it's it's a, a little provincial town. Uh, Eight thousand miles away from yeah. from home, clearly there was an aggressor uh, and an and occupation that needed, from our point of view, uh, to be uh, it was illegal and needed to be overthrown. It was just very yeah. very simple and straightforward, uh, yeah. and and of course we won. Um, yeah, simple straightforward things that can be presented in black and white for politicians are absolute uh, mm. absolute catnip, aren't they? So, oh, God, yeah, so, yeah. so, so, no wonder it fed into that. I mean, you could argue, you could argue that that not was barking up the right tree if your commitment to NATO yeah. anyway. He's not doing anything wrong, is he? He's, no. he's uh, you know, uh, yeah. It's, it's such an extraordinary yeah. story. Yeah. But I mean, I, that we have uh, two new uh, sixty thousand ton aircraft yeah. carriers, yeah. and that we've got stealth fighters. Uh, joining the Air Force and Fleet Air and ready to fly off them is as a direct result of the Falklands yes. War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's Amazing. certainly no, it's certainly Amazing. no use in Afghanistan or wherever, wherever, <laughs> no, you know, no, sure. whichever no. d- d- landlocked desert we end no. up fighting in next. None at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, Roland, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, again, is it, we, we we always say this on the podcast, especially with our guests, is we could literally talk about this all day. Um, yeah, it's been such a pleasure. I mean, yeah, oh, so good. could I. I mean, I'm about to do some work. Uh, I mean, it's been... Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I mean, it's... Uh, it's well, you have come back and talked about Vulcan 607 because yeah, we yeah. haven't really talked about that. No, yeah, 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 yeah. That's an amazing yeah, well, story, I'd love too. to. I mean, uh, yeah, it really is. I mean, another thing which adds to the appeal of the Falklands yeah. War, you got yeah. you know strategic bombers too yeah yeah i mean it really, it really it, it, it's it's totally got it all yeah. <laughs> thank well, you so very much, much. <laughs> and, th- and thanks for listening everyone we'll see you again soon cheerio cheerio